So you drafted a fantasy football team. Big deal. Ooh, Ooh wow. Ooh. Good job. Drafting is only half the battle. A month from now, you're going to wake up, check your team, and see that your three best players are hurt. Now what? You need to play the waivers, make trades, know who to start. And that's what we're here for. We're coming to you four times a week during the regular season to give you everything you need to win your league and dominate your group chat. Search for the Ringer Fantasy Football Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast and subscribe. It's the Ringer Gambling Show presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus, and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 100Gambler. Visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Hello, everyone. I am Warren Sharp from Sharp Football Analysis. Welcome to the first episode of the Ringer Gambling Show. This is going to be exciting. Today, I'm joined by the Ringer's Ben Solak, as I will be every single Wednesday throughout the NFL season. It's going to be outstanding. What is up, Ben? Oh, man. It's it's not only is it week one, not only is it a returning Super Bowl champion, Tom Brady, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, all that, John. Not only is it Dak Prescott back from injury, but it's the like it's one of the highest totals for this this week. It's with one of the best offenses from last year. The MVP vibes we were getting from Prescott early. I I always get disproportionately excited for Thursday night, but this game legitimately feels like it could be one of the best of Week One. So they gave us a treat for the opening game, and I'm excited. They absolutely did. It's going to be phenomenal. I'm really looking forward to that as well. Um, ben and I are going to be diving through these things on a on a deep into the weeds type angle, getting you some nerdy stuff. Uh, ben and I both love it a lot. And uh, things that stuck out to us from the prior week's games that we can't stop researching. We'll preview Thursday night football. Obviously, this week, we're not going to be digging into the stuff from the weeds that stood out to us from last week's games because it's week one. It's opening night. Oh, come night. on, Warren. You didn't watch week zero? You don't have any major takeaways from the ghost games preseason? Preseason, there are some takeaways, but I don't know that they're worth wasting people's time with. So that's why this show, we're going to be digging into some of the future bets that we both play. So I'm going to be asking you for some of yours. I'm going to be sharing some of mine, uh, but a little bit about the schedule first before we dive into Thursday night preview week one opening kickoff of the season. On Mondays, I'm going to be joined by Chris Vernon. And on Fridays, I'm going to be joined by Joe House. So I'm going to be coming to you 
three times a week on this show. Every single week during the football season, we're going to be talking about all things gambling. It is going to be really exciting. Different angles for each show. They're all going to be unique in their own way. Some are going to be very reactionary. Some are going to be very predictive. It is going to be a ton of fun. So I'm really looking forward to that. With that said, this is an outstanding matchup, as you mentioned, Ben. They picked a great one for us, especially with the Cowboys on hard knocks. We got to see a little bit behind the curtain as to how Dak's rehab was going and what they were doing in Dallas. Ben, how excited are you for this game on Thursday night between the Cowboys and the Bucks? Yeah, I mean, so I'm, I'm thrilled, right? And and we have a, a team in the Bucs who I think is a very clear NFC contender, like, whoa, breaking news. Yeah, they're returning Super Bowl champion, division's worse. Like, yeah, they're going to be back. But the I think that the majority of my interest, just from a season-long perspective, falls on who the Cowboys are, right? When we looked at the 2020 Cowboys, we said, okay, can this offense carry this defense? Because the defense, uh, first year under Mike Nolan and and clearly a little bit uh, lacking in terms of uh, what's in the cupboard and some of the depth you'd like at key positions like edge and like corner. And so, all right, defense isn't going to be great. Can the offense carry them? And for five games, it was like, holy smokes, maybe they can. You know, like we really had a a Dak Prescott-led passing attack that could just get stuck in multi-score holes in the middle of the third quarter and then just claw and climb their way out. And of course, they're not going to be playing the onside kick agnostic Atlanta Falcons every single week, but they could do that. And it seemed like they could do that for a while. And then Dak goes down during the game against the Giants. And now we come back to the 2021 Cowboys. You know what we got? We got a really good offense. We got a, a defense first year under, under Dan Quinn that's maybe lacking a little bit in terms of depth and in terms of talent. And boy, this feels like it could be just about the same, right? This feels like it could be a situation, again, where the Cowboys are going to have to constantly win shootouts. I don't know if they can win a shootout against the Bucs. The passing game for the Bucs, obviously, ended the season really strong last year. Returns everybody, as we've talked about with Tampa. Defense is, is loaded stem to stern, and the Cowboys have a couple of key injuries that I think are going to hold them back a little bit. But if this offense shows that it can hang, if it shows they can score some points on the Bucs, then you start to have faith in the Cowboys to follow that model for the rest of the season. It's very conditional on Dak's health, but if they can keep Dak healthy for 17 games, then maybe, yeah, they could win 10 games by just being a flamethrower, win a bad NFC East, make it to the playoffs. So even if the Cowboys lose, as I think everybody would expect them to, uh, you do get a big heat check moment right now for Dallas. Is Dak healthy enough to do what he did last year to make this team seem like a potential NFC playoff team and make Dak be an MVP candidate? Yeah, and it's going to require a lot of him right out the gates because they're going to be behind in this game most likely. I mean, the line obviously indicates that this thing opened at six at some spot, six and a half. It's been bet through the seven, up past seven and a half, is now sitting at eight, eight and a half at a lot of spots. Uh, very indicative of the fact that the Cowboys are going to be behind. And Ben, when Dak was playing last season and this team was tied or leading in games, they passed the ball on early downs at a 52% rate. That was still above average, but we're talking almost 50% pass, 50% run on these early downs when tied or leading. When they were trailing, they were 70% pass. At any point in the game, when they were down on the scoreboard, they were passing the ball. How much is 70%? 70% over the entire season Number one in the league in terms of most pass heavy. The Buffalo Bills also were at 70%, but they obviously trailed much less often. Dallas, 
of course, did not fare so well in these games that Dak was playing. And So Mike McCarthy did learn at least one thing from his trip to PFF in 2019, and it was to throw the ball when you're down. That <laughs> one he got, and the rest of it he's still working on. Exactly. And so I'm expecting this ball to be in Dak's hand. I mean, I know that there's Ezekiel Elliott and this offensive line. Can they get back on track? But when you look last season, you know, I'm interested in your take on Zeke versus Pollard. There was not a whole lot of difference between Zeke versus Pollard. In many ways, Pollard was actually more effective. Zeke was not great without Dak before the offensive line really rapidly deteriorated. So Mm -hmm. it wasn't necessarily did this offensive line, like how healthy is this offensive line for Zeke, it's does he have Dak or not? If he has Dak, the run game is going to be somewhat there in terms of efficiency, only because the quarterback is going to provide that efficiency. A decent quarterback with wide receivers that the opposing defense respects, you are going to get a little bit more efficiency. I don't see a lot of value in Zeke, but because of this line and this matchup, I don't know that Zeke's going to be a major factor here, but the run defense certainly was a weakness of Tampa Bay's. How do you think Dallas is going to try to balance Dak out the gates in terms of getting into the flow of a game, being chased around with this pass rush? Will they try to rely a little bit too much on Zeke in your estimation, and how might that go early in this game? Yeah, I'm I'm worried that you do get a little bit of feed Zeke early. Uh, the reports are that Zeke is slimmed down, right? And that he's playing now at like 215, 220, which if you're doing the math means that he was playing at like 230, 235 last year, which is heavy uh, for an NFL back. Zeke and Pollard are very different style players, right? We always talk about how box counts affect rushing efficacy. And obviously when you have a good quarterback back there and you expect to have a good passing game, you're going to get lighter boxes. That's going to make running easier. But what's always made Zeke such a good back, such an impressive back, is his ability to turn three-yard gains into five-yard gains because Zeke's really good at surviving contact. Zeke's really good at getting through tight areas between the tackles, taking on a glancing hit, adjusting his shoulders, adjusting his hips just slightly to survive that hit, fall forward, and he gets those that, that dirty hidden yardage that a lot of smaller backs don't necessarily do. He's got such great instincts, such great eyes to get that done. Pollard is much more so a big play hunter. He's much more so an explosive guy. And so when you have a drop-off in the offensive line, like you were talking about, that benefits a player like Pollard. Because now Zeke and Pollard are both going to be getting your zero-yard gains, your one negative one-yard gains. But Pollard has the ability to make some pretty significant guys miss in space and then turn up field and hit explosives, right? He's got a little bit more juice when he gets outside of the tackle box. So that struggle in the offensive line helped Pollard out more. But it is worth noting that, like you said, Zeke... Zeke's efficacy fell off last year. It was falling for the past couple of years. And I think the slimming down is really important because he just looked a little plodding. He looked a little heavy. So if he's back and he's athletic, they're going to feed him. And it's because they are familiar with that model leading to success. And I know know it doesn't actually lead to success, but they're familiar with that model and it's helped them before. Um, So I do think they're going to feed him early. If he doesn't look like the Zeke of old, I do think they'll get away from it quickly, and I do think they'll turn more to Pollard. To me, if if you get ineffective Zeke this year, I do think this backfield will start to become a little bit more running back by committee, a little bit more 1A, 1B. Now, because they drafted Pollard, and he's looked good. You do have to start feeding him some touches. But for the scope of just one week, I do think that, yeah, you're going to get a heavy dose of Zeke early. And I and with a, a guy like Vita Vea on the opposite side, back from injury, hopefully healthy, with Zach Martin on the COVID-19 list, missing this game, those early down runs probably are not going to be successful between the tackles. It's one of the best run blocking, run defending, excuse me, defensive tackles in the league. 
now missing your, your elite right guard. I think they're going to go poorly. And I think, yeah, you're going to get forced into that pass heavy script because you're down by multiple scores pretty much right away. Yeah, and that's the big thing for Tampa Bay. The goal for any defense would be to try to make the offense predictable if they can. And and the way you can do that is if Tampa Bay is able to jump out to a lead. If the Bucks are able to grab a lead in this game, Dallas's offense is going to have to shift to the pass, get away from using Zeke, and that's pin your ears back time. That's 70% pass rate time for Dallas's offense. This is ideal for the Tampa Bay defense. So I think Tampa Bay's offense will make life easier on their defense uh, by getting a lead. And when they had a lead at halftime last season, they went 7-0. and When they trailed at halftime, they went 3-5. and Obviously, they were tied at halftime in one of the games. But that's a big difference. And clearly, getting the lead early is going to be more paramount in this game, in my opinion, than many because of the fact that you've got Dak returning from injury. And you've got, as you alluded to, an offensive staff in the Dallas Cowboys that probably doesn't want to just say, all right, Dak, our game plan is going to be you drop back a million times against this pass rush. They're probably going to want to come out and run the ball a little bit more than they otherwise would. And so if Tampa jumps out quickly, Dallas is abandoning that game plan, going back to the pass at a very high rate, the highest rate in the NFL, and that's going to probably spell a disaster. Now, they're going to have some gains. They've got skills at the wide receiver position, but I don't know that being so predictable offensively is going to help them in this game. On the other side of the ball, Ben, a couple things I'm looking for here. Tampa Bay really changed their strategies after the bye week. Prior to the bye week, they were using very little pre-snap motion, 1% below average rate of pre-snap motion. After the bye week, that jumped from 39% all the way up to 59% on early downs. That was fourth highest in the NFL. Play action was similar. They were only using play action 25% of the time on early downs. That was 31st in the NFL prior to the buy. After the buy, that rockets up to 37%. Still only about NFL average, but a massive jump from 31st all the way up to NFL average. Play action in the playoffs made a huge difference. Their EPA per attempt, 0.35 with play action, negative 0.04 without play action, 8.7 yards per attempt with, 5 yards per attempt without. This team was significantly better when they were utilizing motion, whether it was the pre-snap or the post-snap motion. I hope that they come out the gates this year knowing a little bit more about what was efficient, knowing a little bit more about how Tom Brady fits into the offense and upgrades the rates of motion, and that's going to help propel them. It is interesting from an injury note, before I get into some of the things you might be looking at from a betting perspective in this game and transitioning into our futures, Chris Godwin limited in Tuesday's practice. Um, that is a big development, obviously a key facet of the Tampa Bay passing game. Um, ben, from a betting perspective, what are your thoughts on this game right now? Obviously, as we're discussing it, the total sits right around 51 and a half to 52, and the spread is right around Tampa Bay minus eight. Yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm, as you said, I'm very interested to see if this Bucks offense picks up where it left off, right? The other part that's fascinating to me is how good Leonard Fournette was down the stretch last year, uh, especially in the playoffs, right? Playoff Lenny was just rumbling. And Ronald Jones uh, accordingly lost a little bit of, of run for them. When you look at their rushing props, Ronald Jones still has a slight edge. I'm interested in that. I don't know if I have enough faith in my own ability to figure out who's going to be the primary back in Bruce Arians' offense. But if I did, I'd like that. In terms of the general 
uh, over-unders, and, and, and uh, excuse me, the total in the spread. I think I, I still land on Bucks minus eight. Uh, returning Super Bowl champions have been 11-4-1 in the last uh, 16 openers uh, against the spread, and so usually you're getting that big advantage. It is a, a spread that's jumped. I would have preferred to get it, obviously, before you hit that key number of seven. Uh, but when you look at a Dallas team, I don't think that they are a multi-score within Tampa Bay just because the defense is so bad. The defense is so, so, so worrisome. The What you are worried about is the backdoor cover. You are worried about losing that minus eight on garbage time touchdowns, on them getting Dak some reps. Obviously, he missed a bunch of camp. And so if they have like an opportunity to run a two-minute drill and they're down by 13, they're going to take it because they, they're going to want Dak to get that run, especially against a defense like the Buccaneers. So you're worried about backdoor. I personally like minus eight. I also lean on the over at 51.5. It's a very high total, especially for week one. It can be some sloppy play. And so I, I don't think I'll touch that because that's just a little bit too rich for my blood. But I do think we're going to be high scoring. I do think we're going to get a Bucks early lead and then a, a, a Cowboys push late. I'd take Bucks minus eight. In general, I like Sunday lines a lot better than this one just because there's a lot of volatility in this game. Uh, player props is where I'll probably make the most of my bets when we look at Tampa Bay versus Dallas. Yeah, I think the books are going to be just so eager to line so many different things from a player pop perspective that they can't be right on everything. And that's where we as bettors are going to be looking to pounce is those guys have to do all the hard work. They have to come up with lines for everything. We generate our own numbers for everything as well. But we don't have to take bets on all of our things. We just have to find where we think the book is wrong on a few different things every single week. And we pounce on those things. They're taking bets across the board. So we do have an advantage. And I think we will, on this gambling show throughout the course of the season, find that we're going to be able to beat these guys year in and year out uh, pretty successfully. Now, that's still only means at times that we're hitting 55% of our wagers, but uh, that is going to generate profit in the long run. You only have to beat 52.4% on minus 110 lines. As you mentioned, Ben, home teams absolutely have dominated these Thursday night openers. 15 and 3 in Thursday night openers, 11, 3, and 4 ATS. Four pushes on these things. It means odds makers are actually doing a pretty good job of setting the number here. I think yeah. this number is, if you looked at it and you said, Dallas Cowboys are supposed to win the NFC East this year, and yet they're catching eight points against the Bucs in the opening game. I mean, clearly the odds makers are given a healthy dose of respect to Tampa Bay. Look, the way that I would approach this game, this makes for a perfect teaser leg. As we're going to talk throughout the show, every single uh, week of the season, you are going to find the optimum value when you tease a game through seven and through the three. This game allows you to do that. You can use a six-point teaser, get it all the way down to Tampa Bay minus two. You obviously have to come back, pair it with something else on Sunday, but there are a number of games where you're going to be able to tease through the seven and the three on Sunday as well. So that's a way that I would be looking at, at dealing with this. You don't necessarily have to money line parlay this. There are going to be some games where you might find more value simply money line parlaying the favorite, but because you can go through the seven and the three, you don't want to do that. You just want to throw this thing into a teaser. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like when your fantasy league meets up at your house. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this is anything but a fantasy. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. 
Not available in every state. Based on coverage selected. Subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Ben, let's transition now. I think we're really excited about this Thursday night game, but there is still opportunities for people that are listening out there to place futures bets on what they think is going to happen in the 2021 season. So I want to ask you, what are some of the things that you have looked at? We'll go through it one at a time that have value on the futures market. I don't care necessarily in this first question if the line has moved because I want to know just what is some of your strongest positions. And then we'll discuss quickly what are some of the bets that you think still may have value on the betting board. But first and foremost, it doesn't matter when you took it this summer. Give me one or two things that you just really thought are going to happen this season that had opportunity to bet at one time or another this offseason. Yeah, so I'll give you one that hits every single thing that you're asking for because it's still around. I still think it's good value. It's a very big position for me. You know I got a big draft background, right? And so I bet a lot on the draft coming in, and then I bet a lot on rookies coming out. Uh, The Jamar Chase receiving total line was initially set at 1,025 yards, which there have not been that many rookie receivers who have eclipsed 1,000 yards. Right now, you can find it at 965 at FanDuel. And I redid the numbers. In the last 10 years, only 11 wide receivers have hit over that total in their rookie year. In the last four years, it's only been two. It was A.J. Brown in 2019 and Justin Jefferson in 2020. And what you'll recognize about both Jefferson and A.J. Brown is they were not the earliest drafted receivers in their draft class. Draft capital was not a a signal of how valuable those guys were going to end up being. And they walked into situations in which there was not a significant competition for volume. A.J. Brown walked in and just had Corey Davis, who was the incumbent receiver there. Justin Jefferson walked in and replaced Stephon Diggs. There was just Adam Thielen. They were vacuums that they filled. That is not the case in Cincinnati for Jamar Chase, who was the number five overall pick. Yes, they made a big investment in him. Yes, he was Joe Burrow's college teammate. But T. Higgins was great last year and was pushing down the stretch at 1,000 yards. Tyler Boyd has the slot locked down. And so you're not going to see Jamar Chase get to kick inside and get easy targets and easy yardage if he struggles outside. And guess what Jamar Chase has done all preseason, all training camp? He's really struggled outside. Uh, I I talked about this on the Ringer NFL show earlier in the month. We're seeing that rookies, especially at skill positions like wide receiver and corner, who really, really, really relied on physicality. They relied on size in college. They big boyed their opponents. Those players tend to struggle to find their footing early as you get into the NFL. They deal with penalties and they deal with new NFL size. And so a guy like Jamar Chase, who is all contested catch at LSU, despite the fact that he's not 6'3". He's not 210. He's a little bit smaller. He's really struggling with NFL size. And you saw the way his confidence kind of tailed off in the preseason as well. So you can get Jamar Chase at FanDuel under 96, 965 receiving yards right now. I think it's minus 112 is the juice. To me, that's extremely welcoming because I expect him to be the third target at first in that offense. And I don't think he gets any higher than target two because I do think that T. Higgins is going to be an important player to them. So unless they are truly force feeding him the ball for the sake of losing football games, I think he's really going to struggle to get up to that 965 mark. Yeah, and it certainly looks like what we've seen in the preseason. We mentioned, have we learned anything from the preseason? I think the one thing that stands out to me with the Cincinnati Bengals is it just doesn't look like Joe Burrow is fully comfortable back there. And when you get these players rushing at the quarterback and falling around his feet, we'll see. But in a game, in a season like this, 
A, to hit that mark, as you kind of mentioned, you have to stay healthy at the wide receiver position, which is sometimes easier said than done with such an extenuated, such a elongated season like this, 17 weeks, coupled with the fact that these guys have been playing in the preseason, preseason games, and they've been doing all the work in the offseason. And a rookie is not used to that level of workload coming straight out of college. Number two, you are going to have to have your quarterback stay healthy as well. And that mm-hmm. is, you know, going to be... And he needs time to throw, too, which Cincinnati's drafted a guard in the second round. They can't even get him to start because he's struggling as well. So, I, I agree. The whole offense is tough to, tough to buy in on. Let me switch over to another team in the AFC. I want to get your quick take on the Denver Broncos. So, I don't disagree with your Jamar Chase bet. I think that might be something worth pursuing. If you guys are listening, I like the Denver Broncos over their eight and a half game win total. This is a team that... If you look at Teddy Bridgewater, he played, I know that there's detractors, I know that there's negative things that you can say about what he did in Carolina, but he played the number one most difficult schedule of opposing pass defenses in the NFL last year. Invariably, that has a major impact on how you're going to perform as a quarterback and I like to look at from a strength of schedule perspective, Ben, I don't care if you played like the 20th schedule and then move to like the 13th schedule. What I do care about is either ends of the spectrum. And when you play the number one most difficult schedule last season, and now you're going to play what I am predicting to be the number one easiest schedule of opposing pass defenses, that will make a quarterback look a little bit better. And that's what he's going to be facing now that he's been announced as a starting quarterback in Denver. This team appears to have, and you can give me some insight into Javante Williams, big, big plans for Javante Williams, so much so that they were holding him out of the final preseason game because they already know what they're going to get out of him and they've carved out a role on offense. So he's going to be contributing in the backfield. I do like their backfield. I think their offensive line is fine. Their skill position players are incredible at the receiving and tight end position. This defense is solid. Um, This was a team that played a difficult schedule last year, goes to an easier schedule this year. This was a team that was minus 16 in turnover margin last year, the most in the NFL. Uh, So that has to regress a little bit. Teddy's probably going to take fewer chances deep down the field. That's going to help from a turnover perspective. Uh, This is a team that had terrible field goal luck last year, 30th in field goal luck. That's going to regress a little bit. They played in 10 one-score games last year. They only won four of them. I think this team is going to be able to, even in a difficult AFC West division, exceed eight and a half wins. Any quick thoughts on the Denver Broncos? I'm just so mad because you're going through all those stats. And I was like, all right, I've got the close game stat. He doesn't have it. I'm going to have one (laughs) stat that Warren doesn't have. And at the end of all of those stats, Warren goes, yeah, in close games, we played 10, only one four. I was like, dang it. (laughs) Warren always (laughs) has every single item you can need, every nugget. So yeah, no, I, I very much like it from a process perspective. And I agree with you that I think that Teddy is underappreciated in his ability to get out of his own team's way. Let the playmakers make plays, let the defense carry you, and you're going to go ahead and win some ballgames. I do get worried about Chiefs twice and Chargers twice. To me, that's one and three, maybe. And then also, like, the Raiders have enough firepower. We saw them beat the Chiefs last year that maybe you're two and four in division. And so now, if you're looking at uh, I got to do the math. It's 17 games. You got 11 games left and to clear eight, 8.5, you got to win seven of those, right? So the division does give me pause. I always like 
backing over win totals in teams where I think they can fall back on beating their division opponents. Why I like Washington on divisional totals this year. I like Chicago a little bit as well, just because you get Minnesota and Detroit, two teams I, I think are going to really, really struggle. It is worth noting, I also have a lot of Miami and they have a really good division. So this is, I'm not good at following my own rules here. That's the one thing that does give me pause with the Broncos. But yes, I, I do think that what I really love about Teddy for that offense is he was number one last year by Sports Info Solutions. Here's a nugget you didn't drop. In on-target throws against man coverage, right? And what that means is, yes, the dot was super, super shallow. He was throwing very close to the line of scrimmage. But when you have players like KJ Hamler, Jerry Judy, and Noah Fant, their tight end, all of whom are really, really good after the catch, just get the ball to the playmakers and then let them do their work. And that's what you don't get from Drew Locke. Sure, you get the seam runs with Noah Fant. You get the deep shots to Cortland Sutton. But even with low dot. Teddy can really run a nice offense with the weapons that they have there. So I do think that offense will be enough that they're going to be a, a, a tough out. I, I'm probably not as all the way in on it as you are. But yeah, Broncos are a fun team to back. They got a lot of really good pieces. Yeah, I will say that when I look at placing wagers, the first thing, obviously, I've done all of my process work. So I'm identifying bets that I think might have value. But I then quickly turn to what could go wrong. What don't I like about this bet? I think too many right. people do their process and then just start thinking about all the positive outcomes and there's no real negatives and like this is going to be a major win and it's going to be super easy. There are negatives about this bet. You mentioned a couple, but a couple others that I have are simply the coaching staff. Like I, I did not like Drew Locke with this bet, but now he's off to the side. Teddy is there. I have a little bit higher confidence because I think his floor is higher. He not be maybe may not be able to deliver the high ceiling to take you deep into the playoffs, but I do think his floor, in terms of stacking some wins here, is higher than what I expect out of Drew Locke. But Pat Shermer, my God, major issues with the way that Pat Shermer was calling this offense from a game planning perspective last year, and then of course you got ultra-conservative Vic Fangio, which led to probably the decision to go with Teddy Bridgewater in some respects because he's looking to save his job. He needs that high floor of wins. He can't afford to have a losing season or he is probably gone. But Vic is just a conservative guy in game as well. Fourth down decision-making, uh, the desire to like jump out early. He's going to try to rely on keeping games close, letting the defense you know stay off the field. Like I just don't like that combination from a coaching perspective. But I do think there's enough there. And the other interesting element I like, when you get past week 13, when you play the Kansas City Chiefs, if you look at their schedule, you've got the Lions and the Bengals. These are two teams that arguably could be vying for the number one overall draft pick in all reality next season. These guys would probably care more about losing games to try to get draft position by week 14 and 15 of the season. Um, coupled with the Raiders, which who knows what the Raiders are going to be. I think their variance, their outcome is all over the place. But if they get right. late in the season and they're not playing very well. Draft position could be a factor as well. And then, of course, you've got the Kansas City Chiefs, the final game, week 18, the first week 18 of the regular season that we have. Maybe they're resting some of their guys. Enough about the Denver Broncos, though. Ben, drop another nugget on these guys. What's another bet that you like this season? Yeah, I uh, I mentioned some of the teams that I have totals on. Uh, Chicago, I have Tampa Bay over 11 and a half, which I'm not sure if it's still there or not. But the moment that opened, I was like, yeah, this division's horrible. The team's really good. Let's do it. Uh, I have Seattle over 10, which, like you said, like there's a lot of process that goes into it. And, 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 and there's plenty of reasons to like that. I think that Seattle right now is the cheapest of the big three in the NFC West between the the Rams, the Niners, and the Seahawks. Um, but also sometimes 
Russell Wilson's never not won 10 games. You just kind of roll with that and, and you assume that they're going to be able to figure that out as they go. Um, but speaking of that division, uh, I think everybody wants to figure out how to get a piece of the San Francisco 49ers this year because there's a chance they're really good. But you don't really know which quarterback it'll be uh, and for how long those quarterbacks will be out there, right? Like Trey Lance is a really fun rookie of the year bet, but we haven't had a quarterback win rookie of the year in the last 20 years without at least 13 starts, I want to say. Vince Young, Ben Roethlisberger. Uh, so you got to get out there quick if you're going to win that award. And, oh, let's bet on them to win the division. But Seattle and Los Angeles could also be 12, 13, 14 win teams. So they could be really good and still lose the division. So I feel like if you want to get a piece of San Francisco and you're not sure how to do it, I like Kyle Shanahan for coach of the year. Uh, I, I got it at plus 1,800. It's plus 1,600 right now. When you look back at coach of the year, usually it's guys who have pretty significant firsts, right? So we've had recently Kevin Stefanski, Matt Nagy, Sean McVay, Bruce Arians interim with the Colts, Jim Harbaugh. They were all first-year head coaches. And for those coaches, they all added big wins on the team total. And that won't be a, necessarily the case, for Kyle Shanahan, when you look back, San Francisco's win total is at 10 right now. They had six wins last year. So you're adding like five wins if they get 11. That'd probably be enough. But even beyond first-year head coaches, because Shanahan's obviously been there for a while, you see coaches in place who have first-year quarterbacks win this award as well. Uh, when uh, uh, Arians won it in 2012, that was Andrew Luck's first-year as quarterback. When Jason Garrett won it in 2016, that was Dak Prescott's first-year as quarterback. When John Harbaugh won it in 2019, that was Lamar's first-year quarterback. So when incumbent coaches bring in first-year quarterbacks and find success, oftentimes that head coach is just as much of a candidate for coach of the year as that young rookie might be for rookie of the year. And so in this way, we can kind of get a little bit in on like the Trey Lance hype and a little bit of the rookie of the year hype while getting a better number at plus 1600 and also protecting ourselves in the event that Jimmy plays seven games and Lance only plays or starts 10, I should say, so kind of interchange. So we protect ourselves in the case that that QB platoon kind of sticks around and draws down Lance's rookie of the year odds. Shanahan gives us that award. Throw in the fact that it's very clear that Shanahan had a big hand in that decision Right. It wasn't like John Lynch made that call. Shanahan's got a big, big, big say in the draft process. And if Lance hits, that is even further to Kyle Shanahan's credit because we know that he was a part of that draft pick. And so I like Shanahan a lot uh, for coach of the year as a way to get in on the Niners hype with a really good number at plus 1600 while also protecting myself a little bit from the volatility in the quarterback room. Yeah, in general, I'm a big Niners fan this season. I like their quarterback redundancy that they have. I think that's a key word that's going to be helpful for us over the course of the season with COVID sticking around and all these protocols and guys missing days for close contact and just how transmissible this Delta variant is, I do think that we are going to have potentially more COVID issues with players having to miss time this season than we did last season. And as a result, having the redundancy at the quarterback position, now they weren't dealing with quarterback redundancy uh, from COVID in the past, it was just Jimmy G getting hurt. And now he's got a guy to fall back on if Jimmy G does get hurt. We know the stats. Kyle is ridiculous. I think it's like 26 and nine when he's got Jimmy G and just terrible without Jimmy G speaks to how important a quarterback is even for a great offensive mind like a Kyle Shanahan. I want to throw one at you. I am typically going to be jumping in terms of player props on more unders than overs. Mm -hmm. uh, typically, the odds get shaded a little bit towards the overs, but here's one that caught my eye. I did bet it earlier this offseason. 
It happens to be an over and it's on a rookie. So I want to throw this one at you and lean on your experience evaluating this guy and evaluating his coach who was in the college ranks. And that's, do you think Trevor Lawrence is going to get four or more rushing touchdowns this season? I know that in the past at Ohio State, they have ran their quarterbacks an awful lot in terms of touchdowns, whether it was Dwayne Haskins had four in 14 games, but prior to Dwayne, JT Barrett was always running for 12, 9, 13 combined when he and Cardell Jones were there in 2015, 12 combined in with uh, him and Cardell Jones in 2014. Braxton Miller was running them in in 2013 and 2012. And then you look at what Trevor Lawrence himself was doing the last couple of years in 10 games last year, he ran in eight. In 15 games in 2019, he ran in nine. I think you've got a team in the Jacksonville Jaguars who is going to skew more pass heavy than a lot of people may expect. You look at Daryl Bevel and you look at Brian Schottenheimer, two coordinators that were fired basically by Pete Carroll in Seattle for being a little bit too aggressive through the air. And that was with Russell Wilson. Um, But these guys both are now in Jacksonville, Schottenheimer's the QB coach, obviously not the offense coordinator, but they're in charge of that offense. And as long as Urban Meyer is okay with it, they're probably going to be skewing more pass heavy. But when they get down towards the end zone, that's where you're going to find much more efficiency running the football, especially from more spread sets. And a quarterback can really help that ground game when he runs the football and you don't have to hand the ball off and have the quarterback do nothing. You get to utilize all of your blockers. You get to use some read stuff down there. What do you think? It's a, it's a three and a half point, uh, touchdown mark. Some books have four. Any thoughts on what we could expect? from a Trevor Lawrence rushing touchdown mark. Yeah, I love this. This is this is a very good example of what you were talking about earlier, right? Where it's books got to make lines for everything. And you go and you find where you think you have edges. And then you look through your, your process and you go heuristically and you say, all right, what makes sense here, right? When we start to build out how this would work and what would keep it from happening. Because everyone's going to want to bet Trevor Lawrence passing yards and passing touchdowns. But this might be where your edge is. My First note is, right, Lawrence was such a good rusher in college, and it went completely undernoticed and underappreciated because he was also a ludicrously good passer in college, but he was a very, very good runner. Uh, he was a good, uh, we call it like a loping stride. People say he looks like a gazelle out there. He's 6'6", he's a big guy, he's really tall. Uh, so he would be most surprising when he got his stride open, he could really outrun guys. So that's in a little bit more space in the red zone, as opposed to when you have guys who have more bigger bodies or more agility, and that's usually your better short area runners because Lamar can make guys miss in tight spaces and think about like a Jalen Hurts for the Eagles running back sort of build right he's not super tall but he's thick and so he can survive contact he can get uh, forward through a tackle so Lawrence doesn't have the build that you typically associate with a rushing quarterback in the red zone the other thing is that as you brought up with Daryl Bevel and Brian Schottenheimer they currently have a, a, a decent hand in the design of the offense. Figuring out exactly what the Jags want to do from an X's and O's perspective has been one of the tougher things of this preseason. Everybody watched their nationally televised game against the Saints in week two and said, this offense is horrible. And they were kind of pitching their their basic stuff. You know what I mean? They weren't really tipping their hand. They came back in week three, ran a few more RPOs, did a few more uh, screen stuff, that package stuff. Uh, Urban recently had a comment where he said, we're never going to call 
just a straight run. Like we're not going to do it. We're always going to be packaging this sort of stuff with, with bubbles and with now screens and very college inspiration stuff. So what, what we've seen from the Jags doesn't necessarily tell the whole story, but we have not seen a lot of read option stuff of where the quarterback has the ability to keep the ball instead of putting it in the running back's belly, which is typically where you get your quarterback rushing touchdowns, right? You get them on read option designs, whether it's zone or it's counter pullers, whatever. So we haven't seen a lot of that to say strongly, like, all right, Lawrence running in short yardage and goal line situations is going to be a big part of the Jaguars package. With that said, I do think he's going to scramble a lot because they're going to be an empty a lot. They don't have a great tight end room. They don't really believe in, in six and seven man protection. That's not Urban's background. That's not uh, Schottenheimer a little bit, but still, it's not a big part of their their, their package. If he's going to scramble a lot. He's going to be under pressure a lot. That offensive line is dealing with some injury and is in general just like an average to above average unit. When you scramble, now you have the ability to tuck and run and go create. So maybe it won't be rushing touchdowns from like the three, but it can be rushing touchdowns from like the 13, right? And I think that we, we will see, especially rookies, who know they have running ability. Instead of taking those risky tight area throws in the red zone where interceptions are, are a, 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 a real chance, right? Like that, those are very tight windows and those are very debilitating picks because they're in your own end zone. We do see those players tuck and run often. So while I don't think the Jaguars schematically are thinking about Lawrence as being a big rushing touchdown threat for them and that being a package, it does make sense. So we could still see it because they are hiding their cards in the preseason. I do think also the scrambling helps us get there. So four does feel very, very achievable. And I, I and the fact that Urban has always used his, his quarterbacks as rushing threats in the red zone as well, if the Jaguars are struggling in the first half of the season, maybe they start folding in the second half as well. So I, I'm with you there. I like over four. I think it's a fun bet. Let's go ahead and give the listeners one more from you. What do you think still has value on the betting board from a futures perspective that you would want somebody else to tail you on that you feel at least confident enough that you liked your process and you think this is a good wager to make today. Absolutely. Uh, again, an, another situation where uh, the sexy bet is going to pull you in and I'd rather take a contrarian bet. And even if it doesn't hit, I like the, the value I'm getting. We know that linebackers will be in the defensive rookie of the year conversation every single year. And it's because they accumulate counting stats. And these are narrative-driven awards. It's not about who's good. It's about who is visible. And you could tweet out their stats. Like, that's what these awards generally become. So we know that linebackers are a huge part of the defensive rookie of the year awards. We saw Patrick Queen, who generally was an up-and-down struggling player for the Ravens last year, getting this conversation to that point. So, appropriately, Michael Parsons right now, uh, the, the linebacker for the Cowboys, drafted number 11 overall, 600. He's got the best odds for defensive rookie of the year. Jamin Davis is the uh, 19th overall pick, linebacker for the Washington football team. He's the second-best odds at plus 750. Zaven Collins is a linebacker out of Tulsa. He was drafted 16 overall by the Arizona Cardinals. And we've seen that first rounders, especially top half of the first rounders, are usually the players that win defensive rookie of the year because of the names that the media knows. Zavin came into a linebacker room with Isaiah Simmons, another top 10 pick, and Jordan Hicks, the incumbent starting veteran. It was a good player, Warren. Jordan Hicks was doing great stuff for the Cardinals. And the Cardinals did not even open a training camp battle for Collins to displace Hicks. They told Hicks the job was Collins before training camp started. That speaks to the amount of faith 
that they have in Collins. And it speaks to their, their insistence, their stubbornness to get him out on the field and to give him an opportunity to accumulate those counting stats. He's got a bad interior defensive line in front of him, which means that balls are going to come his way. They're not going to be making tackles at the, fir- at the first level. So you're going to have high tackles. And he's a 6'4", 260 big wingspan linebacker. So he's going to get a lot of half tackles. So he's going to be able to jump on a lot of piles, get a paw on a lot of tackles. He's got... Tons of blitzing experience because he has edge size from uh, from Tulsa, how they used him. And he's just weirdly good in zone coverage. Not not You do not see linebackers at the college level play this comfortably in short zone coverage. That's going to turn into pass breakups, interceptions, sacks, and forced fumbles, right? Which is what those are big stats, right? Those are flashy stats. So you can get Zavin at plus 1,300. So the other first-round linebackers are plus 600, plus 750. Zavin, who was handed the starting job over a very good veteran, is plus 1,300. And, and, and for our defensive coordinator in Vance Joseph, who loves to blitz, so he's going to get opportunity to fly at the quarterback. He's got a really good situation to accumulate, like I said, those counting stats and to put his name in this conversation. Even if Michael Parsons gets it, he's also a great player, good situation, whatever. You're getting more than double the odds, plus 600 to plus 1,300. So more than twice as good odds for Zayvon Collins. I love making that bet for Defensive Rookie of the Year. Uh, Arizona Cardinals defense may not be good, but I think he's going to put up a ton of numbers, get his name in the conversation. Yeah, and the other interesting element here, Ben, is if you look back at what Arizona faced last year, I showed them playing one of the easier schedules of opposing offenses, but this year I show them playing the third toughest schedule of opposing pass offenses, the number one toughest schedule of opposing rush offenses. When you are trying to rack and stack statistics for a defensive player, you want to him, you want him to be on the field a lot and you want him to have a lot of opportunities. It's okay if the Cardinals defense overall isn't ideal, but if this guy is getting a ton of statistics against such a difficult schedule of opposing offenses, that is going to make his case a lot better. So I really don't disagree that he's going to have the opportunities. And as you mentioned, the team is super high on him. I agree with everything that you said there from yeah. a process perspective. And if you're worried about Isaiah Simmons, just watch any preseason film and then you won't be worried about Isaiah Simmons just yet. <laughs> so let me ask you before we depart, you know, we're going to be going through a lot more analytically starting next Wednesday, looking back at some of the prior week's action and dissecting what we can learn from it, what might have flown under the radar, because the key when we're trying to bet on games is uncover edges that odds makers may not be factoring into the lines themselves. So if we're noticing things that we think people should realize, or if we're seeing a few trends of prior games that of a couple weeks in a row that we might want to look to factor into what is coming up next, we're going to be giving those to you. But this show, obviously, a little bit of a different perspective. Here, we're talking about a lot of futures bets. Let me ask you, Ben, getting into the futures marketplace for you, how was your offseason in general in terms of placing these bets? Like, Were you researching a ton and trying to go through this in a very process-oriented fashion? How many futures bets overall do you think you had? Obviously, this being a big year with a lot of different states legalizing this action. Mm-hmm. How did it work out for you this off? season like what was your overall takeaways in terms of what you focused on here yeah i'm not gonna answer uh how many bets i have because my mom is listening uh (laughs) and uh she'll get mad so shout out my mom 
But uh, no, I made uh, a healthy number of futures bets. And like I said, I, I have a draft background for people who obviously smart people who've listened to Warren for a long time and are wondering who the other guy in the mic is. Uh, I came up with a draft background before I joined the Ringers NFL team. And so I make a lot of futures bets because I make a lot of rookie bets. Uh, and, and a lot of that is based off of my evaluations tied into then uh, draft capital, right? Like I brought up Zavin as, you know, he's number 16 overall pick. Everybody in the entire world had that pick on their mock draft correct because the Cardinals were very clear that they loved Saban. So you know they're going to feature him. I loved him as a prospect coming out. And now he's got these nice odds and all of that's going to come together to say, all right, I really like Zavin. They really like Zavin. Do the circumstances make sense for him to win this award? And then you go through and you see that 17 of the last 21 winners have been top half of the first round picks. And you see that linebackers have the best history of winning the award. And you say, okay, all of this comes together nicely. What'll happen then is I'll do that for most of the defensive rookie of the year candidates, right? And so Zavin isn't the only ticket that I own. Uh, I have Jamin Davis. I have Jalen Phillips, uh, the the edge for the Dolphins. I have Quiddy Pay and Aziz Ojolari, the edge for Indianapolis and for the Giants. They're not nearly as big because I think Zavin's got the best the best value, but I'll make several bets on that market. And I made several bets on offensive rookie of the year. I make a lot of bets on rookie props because uh, what you typically see is those lines get set uh, fans of those teams are really excited for those players. They juice those lines up. And then I try to, as you said, generally take unders on rookie production because it always feels like they're going to be a big deal in April. So they're the most recent thing that happened in the middle of a dull NFL offseason. So I take a lot of unders on rookies as well. So this was definitely one of the heaviest years for me. I'm in Michigan with... Uh, online sports betting legalized in Michigan and apps like FanDuel, who we have, and some others bringing up now Michigan books. I was able to get different lines as well, which was helpful for me. But generally, when I approach that futures betting, I'm looking at rookies heavily and I'm going off of my evaluations. And then when we get to team totals, I'm going again off of my evaluations, uh, my reads on those teams. I'm a scheme guy. I'm a film guy at heart. It's who I think is going to be better, who I think is not going to be better. Uh, And then I start looking after I decide who I like. At right, items like strength of schedule, items like how are they going to be finishing the season? Are they going to be in the wild card hunt? And who do they have in those that last month of the season when they need those critical wins? Uh, can they defray risk? The point the point you brought up with Delta and with Garoppolo and Lance is such a key, key, key point because everything always feels neat in July. And then when stuff starts to hit the fan, how good is your team at adapting to that? And that's why I like backing teams that have proven coaching staffs. I have Tampa Bay, I have Seattle, like I said, because these guys usually react really well. Uh, to the the ebbs and flows of a difficult season. So I like to back trusted coaching staffs for that reason. Uh, and yeah, I don't have, I think, too many team totals this year. I think 17 games is throwing me off a little bit. Uh, and it's tough to draw too many takeaways from the 2020 season. But on rookies uh, and, and player props for the season, I'm pretty heavy as per usual. Yeah, I think the odds makers actually did a pretty good job in general with the futures totals for the wins on the various different teams. Uh, they really looked at the teams that had some regression predicted and over-adjusted to try to take some value out of those teams. Um, so I think that there was less value in that marketplace. It's always interesting to discuss process because results will vary. Some winning betters will go through rough patches, but the process is what is important. And so that's why I enjoyed uh, hearing that from you, Ben, and wanted to ask you about it. This show is going to be a ton of fun. As you guys can tell, Ben is, is very process-driven and he's got a lot of great background that's going to help us out on 
on these Wednesday shows. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, and that'll do it for our first episode. Now, I do want to mention we're going to have from time to time specials over at Sharp Football Analysis that I can share with you. And right now, if you use the code SHARP30, you can get 30% off anything. We do fantasy football, NFL betting, a lot of different things over there. So tune in for that and tune in to the Friday betting show with Joe House, where I'm going to be running down Joe's card. If you listened to us last year on the Ringer NFL feed, you know, Joe has some wacky ideas. He tries his best. God bless him. But uh, some things are all over the board for <laughs> what Joe brings to me. And we have to try to get through it and try to help him become a better and more intelligent sports better by the end of the season and win along the way. So it's going to be fun. I do not know what he's going to throw at me for week one, but we're going to hear all of his bets on Friday and I'll evaluate them. I'll share a couple of my own. It's going to be great. I want to say a special thank you to Ben. I'm really looking forward to the show with you. I think it's going to be a blast every single Wednesday right here on The Gambling Show. I want to give a special thanks to Mike Wargarn and Craig Holbeck for producing the show. We will see you guys on Friday with Joe House. Get ready for the season. It's here. It's here.